What a great title for a message, huh? One that everybody wants to come to, the sin of unbelief. <laughs> yes, it is, you know. Um, but before we get into this morning's message, I just want to quickly review for you what this day signifies. We, we call this Palm Sunday because it was a time when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, the only time actually that he was willing to be received as the king of the Jews, and he came in on a, on a donkey. In fact, in Zechariah chapter 9, it says, Rejoice so greatly, O daughter of Jerusalem, for your king comes lowly and riding on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And he did this um, and, uh, fulfilling that scripture that had been given hundreds of years prior to that. And as Jesus would come into Jerusalem, you'll recall that the people would bring in palm fronds and they would put them on the, on the road as he was making his procession into Jerusalem. And this day is the day in, in memorial where we commemorate that day today. And it's exactly a week, roughly. It may have actually happened on a Monday, but we'll leave that for later. Either Sunday or a Monday when this event occurred, this triumphal entry. And why was it so, so significant? Well, number one, it fulfilled scripture, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, which I just quoted for you. But there was even another scripture that's even more significant, and that is Daniel chapter 9, verse 25. Because remember, Daniel's prophecy in verses 24 through 27 is really the pivotal um, backbone, if you will, of all end time prophecy. And verse 25 of Daniel chapter 9 says, says this, that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the coming, until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is a total of how many weeks? Seven plus 62? 69, right? 69 weeks, but it's weeks of years. So what that means is 173,880 days. That's literally what it means. So why was this day so significant? Well, there was a gentleman by the name of Sir Robert Anderson many, many years ago who uh, the Lord revealed this to him, and he did the math and did all of this, and, and it's, it's quite amazing, actually. It's one of those uh, prophecies that you'll never want to forget because we know that when Artaxerxes Longimanus, back when he was the king of the Medes and the Persians, after the Babylonian Empire had fallen to the Medes and the Persians, there were four different decrees that were given for the Jews to go back and not only to rebuild their temple, but also to rebuild the walls and, and those in the streets. And it was that one of the fourth decrees that Artaxerxes Longimanus made, in fact, he made that decree for the Jews to go back into Jerusalem and to rebuild the walls and do it even in troublous times, Daniel tells us. And we know exactly what that date was. It was March 14th, 445 BC. So from the going forth of the commandment to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem, from that time, whenever that is, you go forward 69 weeks of years, which is 173,880 days. And what day do you get? This very day. Meaning, the day when Jesus rode in on the donkey. The very same day, the exact same day, April 6, 32 AD. So from March 14, 445 BC, all the way to April 6, 32 AD, is 69 weeks of years or 183,700. Uh, 183, uh, I messed it up again. <laughs> A lot of numbers there. I said it right the first time. So. Uh, 183,780 days, something like that. I forget exactly. But anyway, from that moment to that moment. And so that was a very pinpointed prophecy of when Jesus would come in. And that's why that day was so significant. It was the only time that he would allow himself to be heralded as the king of Israel, the king of Jerusalem, the king of the Jews. The only time, and it was fulfillment of that prophecy that, would, that was given several hundreds of years prior. So a very significant prophecy. And so now, we, we, you know, as far as where we are in the Gospel of John, now this can be a little confusing because we're coming upon Holy Week 
meaning uh, Good Friday is coming up, and then next Sunday morning is what we call Resurrection Sunday. And so today is Palm Sunday. But we're, we just happen to be in the Gospels toward the end of John when Jesus had already resurrected. And we're going to finish that 20th chapter of John's Gospel this morning. And so remember that Jesus had revealed himself on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday. He revealed himself to Mary Magdalene and a, a group of other women who also were there at the same time. And remember that she... Uh, the angel of the two angels actually revealed themselves uh, as they were inside the tomb to Mary and the other women, and then finally Jesus reveals himself in such a way where she didn't recognize who she, who he was. Perhaps the tears in her eyes, perhaps the grief. We really don't know, but there was something different about Jesus's resurrection body that she didn't quite understand. That it's you, but is it you? There was, a, there was a question mark, and so we'll look at that today. But um, so Jesus rises from the grave, and he reveals himself to these women. And notice what it says now in verse 19, because we went down through verse 18 last week. So we pick up, it says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them, Peace be to you, and as the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them, and if you retain the sins of any, they are retained." Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. And so he said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days... His disciples were again inside, and now Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, notice that little detail, and Jesus came and stood in the midst of them and said, Peace be to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord, and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And notice what it says in verse 30. And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things, and here, remember, uh, put an asterisk by this verse if you haven't already. But it's this verse that is the theme verse of the entire Gospel of John. But these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That believing you might have life in his name. And see, that's the crux of the whole Gospel of John, is that we might believe that our faith might be encouraged and built up rather than being eroded, that it would be built up. And that's why John cherry-picked, if you will, these specific miracles that really showed that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Word of God who became flesh and dwelt among us. And see, that is central to your understanding of who Jesus is. You must believe that he is who he says he is. And to not believe that is to live a life of unbelief because the Bible is replete with this statement, with this idea of Jesus being God come in human flesh. In fact, it is because of that that we have confidence in everything that he said and he did. And I pray that you all have that confidence in your heart, that you know beyond the shadow of a doubt that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Because if you don't, then you don't have any assurance of salvation because there's no other name given among men whereby we must be saved than Jesus Christ. There's no other name. No other name. 
But obviously one of the themes, as we read that remainder of the chapter, one of the obvious themes of the passage is unbelief. Unbelief. You know, when we look at unbelief, it is not only a affront to God's character, uh, but it's also, uh, it diminishes what God can do through our lives. It inhibits our growth, and also it is just flat and downright a lack of faith in God. But it's an affront to his character because when we walk in unbelief, we are showing that we really don't trust the Lord, that we really don't believe that he knows best and that he has everything under control. And see, when we only, you know, most of us, we want only the good things in life. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to be comfortable and to have the good things in life. But um, but when God allows something different, some undesirable thing in our life, it tends to shake us because we begin to think, God, do you really love me? Do you really care about me? And and the fact of the matter is he does. And he's working a far more greater weight of glory in your life by the trials and the things that he allows you to go through. That's how our faith grows. That's how my relationship with him grows because it grows by my trust and and that he gives me. He gives me everything. He gives me even the faith to believe in him. But that faith has to be exercised like a muscle. And all of you know this, especially if you do any kind of work. You know, um, Any Olympic athlete knows that if you let those muscles on your body, uh, if you don't do anything with them, they atrophy and they begin to break down. But it's when you work on those things over and over, day by day, you, you, it's a consistent, consistent thing that those muscles build and they build and they get optimized for whatever it is that you're doing, whether it's the javelin or the shot put or the swimming, whatever, your body gets optimized for whatever it is. And see, faith is like that. It's like a muscle for us. We have to exercise it and then we grow therein as a result of that. And so I want to encourage you as we go through this not to be discouraged by unbelief because we all at times have walked in unbelief. And hopefully um, we will grow out of that. And hopefully our life will be more marked by belief and faith in God rather than unbelief. Because when things go differently than what we desire, this is when our faith in, in God's goodness and his righteousness is really tested. But it's important that we learn to trust him in all things. And, and how we respond in faith to the difficulties in, uh, difficulties in our life um, will either make us bitter or it'll make us better, won't it? How we respond to it. If we think God is just angry, it's going to give us a very tarnished view on his character. But when we understand that even the difficult things, even the things that just grind us to powder, that those things are meant to draw us closer to him. And how we respond to that is, is, is everything. I can either get mad at God, and people do. They lose a spouse, they lose a family member, and instead of just, um, you know, certainly there's nothing wrong with grieving. We all grieve when bad things happen. But we also have to understand that God has allowed that for a reason. That person hopefully is in glory, but now you've got to get your faith, your eyes back on Jesus. Otherwise, you're just going to be a shipwreck. And God doesn't want you to be a shipwreck, but how I respond to those trials means everything. I can either get bitter about it, which many people do, or you can get better. You can trust in God and say, God, I don't get it. I don't understand it. I don't even like it, but I know that you're working in me. You're you're, you're bringing me to this place of, of desperation. You're bringing me to this place of dependency upon you, and I'm either going to do that or I'm going to do something else. I'm going to have my dependency on alcohol and drugs and illicit relationships or I'm going to get my face on the carpet and I'm going to seek his face. Seek his face, folks. When you're going through trials and tribulations, which is part and parcel for every believer, we're going to go through these things, but let's not be unbelieving, but be believing and trusting God even in that process of sanctification, which he is allowing. Why? To destroy us? No, it is for our good. He's refining you like silver in an oven. He's bringing all those impurities, all that unbelief right to the top, and then he's going to skim it off the top again, and you're probably going to have a respite for some time where you're like, oh, thank God that's over. But then you realize there's another trial that happens. And you find yourself in the furnace of affliction again and the heat rises and it brings forth all these things within you and your anger and your frustration. And then finally you say, God, forgive me. 
I'm angry at you again. And he's like, I know. I'm going to allow you to go through this, not because I'm trying to hurt you, but there's things that I can only accomplish, and it has to be this way. Will you trust me in the process? Will you trust me, three lads, as you are in the oven and about ready to be thrown into the oven by Nebuchadnezzar? Will you trust me? Those men had already determined in their heart before Nebuchadnezzar threw them in the oven, whatever happens, we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down to your image, O king. And if the Lord desires to uh, preserve us, great. If not, we perish. But this we will not do. They've already determined. Why? Because they had faith in Almighty God. Old Testament. <laughs> Literally in the furnace of affliction. Right? And so God wants to encourage us. And he doesn't want to stunt our growth, but rather to encourage it. And one of the other things that unbelief does is it diminishes what God can do through our life. And it, it, it inhibits our growth. And unbelief is a lack of faith in God. Have you heard the phrase, seeing is believing? This is a phrase that I pray that we all remove from our vocabulary because it is not a godly phrase. But one of the messages of the word of God is rather just the opposite. Not seeing is believing, but rather believing is seeing. Anybody can see and believe, but God says, no, you believe first and then you will see but not so in our culture. We have to see everything. Prove it to me. Show me. You know, that's the Missouri motto. Did you know that? Missouri, the state of Missouri? It's the show me state. And I'm sure it has nothing to do with faith. I don't know the origins of that phrase, but I, I'm using them because it's, it, it is what it is. Show me. But see, that's natural man. Show me and then I'll believe. But God says, no, you believe and then it will be shown to you. And we bristle against that all the time, don't we? But what does the Bible tell us in Hebrews? Because believing is seeing, not seeing is believing. And the Bible tells us in, in Hebrews, by, it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. Do you understand that? Think about that. That's a wonderful phrase. Faith is the substance. You're hoping for it, and yet it's not tangible yet, but yet the evidence of things not yet seen. Now, that's kind of a paradox, isn't it? Because when you have evidence, usually you're talking about physical evidence. It's right before you, but it says it's the, faith, it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not yet seen. That means I don't see it yet, but it's as good as if I did because I believe it. And that is a mystery, folks. And I believe that is only something that God can give. And when you trust in the Lord and he gives you that faith, you don't need to see it because you know that it's going to come to pass. It may not even happen in your lifetime. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him for righteousness because God says, out of you, Abraham, out of your seed will come the Messiah. And your seed will be as the sand of the seashore, the stars in the heavens, so numerable you can't count them. And Abraham believed God, and yet Abraham never saw the promise. But he believed in God. It was the evidence that he had in his heart of things not yet seen. And boy, that is a hard thing for people today because our culture, everything around us is encouraging us to See it first and then believe. And it goes right against the grain of what God tells us. He says, you need to believe and then you will see. But that doesn't mean that you have to check in your heart and your mind at the door. No, it doesn't mean that at all. Examine the evidence. There is so much evidence of the proof and the veracity of the word of God. It is, there is so, i got books in my office that there's so many things that have been written that are, that, that, that are it's, it's stone cold truth. It would hold up in any court of law. And yet there are people going, well, I don't really believe. Well, that's your fault. You need to look at it. You need to look at the evidence. It is overwhelming. The evidence is overwhelming. It is overwhelming, folks. And God wants you to be believing, not unbelieving. He loves you. In fact, um, one of the verses in John chapter 7 is very similar. Verse 17, it says, If anyone wills to do his will, he shall know concerning the doctrine. 
Whether it is from God or whether I speak on my authority, Jesus is speaking here. So knowing the doctrine or teaching doesn't mean that you will then be willing to do it. Rather, if you are willing to do and obey God, then you will know concerning the doctrine. Do you see how that works? It's totally backwards from what the world expects. No, show me the doctrine and then I will will to do it. But God says, no, be willing to do it and then I'll show you the doctrine. It's very similar to this idea of faith. Very similar. In John chapter 8, verse 47, He who is of God hears God's words. Therefore, do not, therefore you do not hear because you are not of God. The, you know, Jesus spoke to the, I believe it was the Pharisees in this, in this situation. So the idea is if you are of God, then you will hear God. He who is of God hears God's words. So believing is seeing, not the other way around. And before we continue in verse 19, last week we looked at verse 18, and there's a couple of things that I just want to quickly go through, but it, it, it gets into this topic of faith and believing. There are two events that occurred between verses 18 and 19, and the first one is the bribing of the soldiers. The bribing of the soldiers, and it occurs for us in Matthew 28, verses 11, um, and, uh, and also, immediately after that, Jesus met with his disciples, two disciples, on the road to Emmaus, and that's where we're going to pick up in just a moment, because that's going to lead us right into what we're talking about today. But notice uh, in, in, in verse 18 of John 20, notice what it said. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. And then now, when we pick up in Matthew 28, this is what immediately happened after that. It says, now while they were going, these ladies, to go tell the disciples, behold, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money. Remember, these guards were there to guard the tomb of Jesus. They even put a, when they put the stone back on the tomb, they sealed that stone to the wall of the, the, of the sepulcher, of the tomb. And before they did that, naturally, they would go in and see and make sure that Jesus is still in the grave, which they did. And then they sealed the tomb. And that angel, Sunday morning, early on the first day of the week, came and rolled, it was an earthquake, and he rolled away the stone. And you remember, the Bible says that the guards were scared out of their minds. But now they go to the religious leaders, and look what happens. And this is a, an important thing, because... So when they assembled with the elders and consulted with the chief priest, they gave, the, the chief priest gave them a large sum of money to these soldiers, saying, tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while he slept. And if this, thing's come, if this comes to the governor's ears, he will appease him, we will appease him. And so they took the money and they did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews unto this day. So the religious leaders were so compromised and so evil that they were willing to pay and bribe these guards who saw and knew the truth. But now they're being told, don't tell anybody. In fact, if anybody asks you where the body is, tell them that in the middle of the night, somebody came and his disciples came and stole the body. Well, there's a lot of problems with that. Number one, their lives depended on them securing that tomb. For that tomb to be rolled away, for that stone to be rolled away, for Jesus to be absent was tantamount to a death sentence for them because it was their job to make sure that that didn't happen. And now they're saying, now the, the, the religious leaders are saying, tell them that they stole the body away. Well, they're thinking to themselves, well, if we do that, we're as dead men. And the religious leader says, don't worry, we'll tell Pilate and we'll appease him because it was them it was them that wanted him dead to begin with. Pilate wanted to wash his hands of this whole thing, but it was the religious leaders that said, we want this to happen. And finally, Pilate gave in to them. So they were the drivers behind this whole thing. And so when they approach Pilate now with a missing Jesus now, they can say, no, it's okay. His disciples came and, you know, it wasn't the, the guy's fault, you know, the guard's fault. And so not only are their lives spared now, but now they've got a lot of cash to go to Disneyland. 
right? So now they are feeling, okay, you guys, after all, are the drivers behind this whole thing. And if you're going to vouch for us and pay us a large sum of money, that's a pretty good day for us. But that's what they did. But notice what happened immediately after this. We Turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Because Luke chapter 24 records for us what happened immediately after that. It says, Behold, two of them were traveling the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem. And they talked together of all these things which had happened. And so it was when they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes, notice, were restrained so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is this that you have with one another as you walk and are sad? And then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered and said unto him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? And have you not known the things which have happened in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? What's so significant that's happened? I love that. Did Jesus know what was happening? Yes, he was the focal point of the whole thing. But what is he doing here? He's drawing out these men to see what they're thinking, to really reveal their faith. And that's really what he's doing. He's drawing them out. And so, but notice what, what, what they said. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to be redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early, they astonished us. And when they did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And certain of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but they did not see. And then Jesus finally upbraids them for their unbelief. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, ought not he to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And then notice, and then beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Now, I bet that was an awesome Bible study because all they had was the Old Testament. The Old Testament. So what kind of scriptures would Jesus share? These are just a few that I know he shared. Genesis 3.15, that he would, be the, 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 he would be the one that would crush the head of the serpent. And Genesis 49.10, when Jacob was prophesying that the scepter would not depart from Judah, but until Shiloh comes, speaking of Jesus. Deuteronomy 18.15, this one whom God would raise up and be like a prophet unto them. This one they, would, they were supposed to listen to. Psalm 22 speaks vividly about the crucifixion as if it was happening in the third person. Certainly Isaiah 53, Jesus would tell them, hey, I, I am the suffering servant. I am what Isaiah was talking about. Yes, I was the one that they pierced when crucifixion wasn't even invented. And yet Isaiah and, and, and David, a thousand years prior, had spoken of it. And what about Daniel 9, 24 through 27? What, we, what we're celebrating today, what we're commemorating this day. And just a week prior to that, Jesus rode in on the donkey. Do you think he told them about that prophecy? You better believe he did. He said, do you guys remember like a, a, on that Sunday prior to today? You remember that last Sunday? Remember last Sunday? Here is why that's significant. Because this is what happened. And Jesus gave them through the prophets and the Old Testament, he gave them a Bible study, and certainly Zechariah 9, verse 9, Behold, your king comes lowly into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus certainly said that. But then in verse 33 of that chapter, So they rose up that very hour, and they returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. And you'll notice that as, uh, it says, As they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them again, or stood in the midst of them and said, peace be to you. And I would imagine he would need to say peace because they've never experienced anything like this before. Jesus had died and now he's standing in the midst of them when the doors were locked and closed for fear of the Jews. Everything is closed off and all of a sudden you look over and there he is. And it's like, how did that happen? And they thought they had seen a ghost. And he says, hey, touch me. 
A spirit doesn't have flesh and bone that as you see me have. Go ahead and touch me. Look at the, the prints of the nails that were in my hands. Look at my side. Look at the, 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 the markings around my head where they planted the, the crown of thorns on and they beat me with a reed and they slapped me and punched me and spit on me and they nailed my feet to that cross, to the stipes. Notice these things. And then he said to them, and, and, and while they looked upon him, it says, uh, and they still, not, they still did not believe for joy, he marveled and says, do you have anything to eat here? I could really go for a Big Mac. <laughs> so they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. And then he said to them, these are the words. And he reminded them, notice, he reminded them of the things that he had spoken to them. He says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding. And what words? We looked at some of them already, but didn't Jesus already predict his death with the disciples? Three different times in Matthew it tells us that he did. And it's interesting that on the very heels of this uh, first confession or this first prediction in Matthew 16, it was right prior to that that Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And remember, Jesus said, the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter, but my father in heaven. And it was right on the heels of that, that Jesus said to them in Matthew 16, 21, it says, from that time, Jesus began to show to his disciples, number one, that he must go to Jerusalem, that he must suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and then be killed and then be rised or raised the third day. He told that to them. He said that in their presence. And it's also interesting that just after Jesus upbraided the disciples for their lack of faith concerning not being able to cast out a demon from a demon-possessed young man, that he reiterated the same thing in Matthew 17. The disciples came to Jesus privately and says, why can we not cast it out? And Jesus says, because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, and a mustard seed is just a small little thing, a small little seed, if you just have the faith of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for, for you. However, this kind does not go out except through fasting and prayer. So evidently, there are different uh, legion or different um, castes, if you will, of demons. And, and while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Notice, and they will kill him, and the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Again, he tells them. That's what a good shepherd does. He prepares, doesn't he? And he prepared them, and he was telling them. And then finally, the third time, in Matthew 20, Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples aside on the road, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify, and the third day he will rise again. And so that's the third time that they heard this simple message. Jesus, again, preparing them. And you know what? The thing that encourages me is that here they were in front of the Son of God. These men were with Jesus physically, tangibly. And he was telling them these things, and they didn't quite get it. And I like that. You know why? Because it reminds me of me. It reminds me of my own callousness at times and I can be told something and I just don't quite get it and they were no different and we are in good company folks here's why what does it tell us in Isaiah a bruised reed God will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench he will bring forth justice for truth he is very gentle. He's not going to take those who are struggling in, in their faith and just break them in half. No, he, he, he is careful. He, he's not going to break that reed when it's, when it's limping over. He's not going to tear it off. He's not going to take that smoking flax and extinguish it, whatever little bit of faith there is. He's not going to do that. Rather, he's going to fan that flame and encourage it to grow. 
And see, that's what he wants to do with us, and that's what he was doing with them. And he was so gracious and so patient with them, as he is to us. Can you relate to that? Because I have fought against the Lord many times, and I have resisted him, and yet he has been so gracious with me, and so compassionate with me, and love him for that. Because he's a gracious God. He doesn't want to squash you. Don't get discouraged when your faith is is hanging on by a thread. And over the last two years, I think many people's faith was hanging on by a thread. And some people just fell. Many who used to go to this fellowship, no longer with us anymore. Many people, as a result of all the things that we're seeing, all the confidence that we're putting in that, they, they, they fell flat on their face when all of this went south, and they've lost their faith. I mean, hopefully they're regaining their faith, and hopefully it's just something that the Lord's going to restore them, and I hope that that's the case, because God wants to do that. But we are tested when things like that happen, and we will either get bitter or we will get better. We will either fall flat on our face and then at some point hopefully grow again, or we will just say, Lord, I don't get it, and that's where I was. Actually, I think I fell. I, honestly, there was a moment where I just lost my head, but I think the Lord restored me, and he's like, Rob, you got your focus on all the wrong things. You're focusing on this. You should be focusing on this. And I'm still struggling with that. And for those of you who know me, you know that to be true because I love this country. I love this country. And I know you do too. But God wants to encourage us and he's not going to break that bruised reed or quench that smoking flax. So let's look at verse 19 now. It says, Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. Yes, peace, because they were scared out of their minds. Never has that occurred where someone has died and then all of a sudden they show up in their midst, without knocking on the door, without sending a text message, hey, I'm here. No, there was nothing. He just appeared before them, and they were literally shaking in their sandals. Peace be with you guys. You need it. Because I'm looking at your faces, and you're about ready to fall over. Your heart's about ready to pound out of your chest. Peace be with you. And again, the first day of the week, and Jesus would reveal himself again to his disciples, not only on that day of the resurrection, that evening, which we're looking at right now, but also in verse 26, we're going to see that when finally Thomas is with them, he reveals himself again to them. And Jesus is fulfilling these promises that he had made on the night of the, first, the Last Supper. Remember what Jesus said to them? He says, let not your heart be troubled. I've told you three times, guys, that I'm going to be crucified, but on the third day I'm going to rise. Don't you worry. Don't you be afraid. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I go to prepare a place for you. And then later on, down in the bottom of that chapter, in verse 18 of John 14, he says, I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will come to you. And what a comforting thing for men who are scared out of their mind because now that they've killed their savior, their their leader in a sense, they are hunted men as well. Hey, if whatever they did to Jesus, they're going to do to you too. If they didn't receive him, they're not going to receive you. But if they receive his words, they're going to receive your words as well. Don't be surprised when the world hates you. But he would would not leave them orphans, but would come to them. So in addition to visiting them on the evening of the resurrection, like I said, he would also visit them eight days later. He would also uh, see them on the shore of Galilee, and we'll see that next week, or actually the week following, because next week is Resurrection Sunday. When we get into John chapter 21, we'll see him revealing himself to his disciples on the shore of the Galilee. And certainly after Pentecost or after those 40 days that Jesus was seen by thousands and hundreds, he would ascend up into heaven. And then 10 days later, what would happen? Pentecost, where the Spirit of God would be poured out. And so he visited them, in a sense, by his Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And what's coming yet for us today where he's going to meet with us, fulfilling that promise, ultimately at the rapture of the church. 
He's going to come for us, and we're going to see him physically. We're going to be caught up together, and we're going to meet him in the air. Aren't you looking forward to that? Yes. I can't wait to, to see. You know, and I'm not even upset that the dead in Christ are going to rise first, because it's going to happen so quick. I'm going to be like, do it. I'll even help you if I, ha- if I can. I'll, I'll, get, you know, I'll do whatever I got to do, because after you go, I'm going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and I'm going to be snatched up off this filthy, rotten planet. And I'm going to be with Christ Amen. for a season, and then we come back with him to the filthy, rotten planet. But he's going to restore many things. It gets much better, folks. It gets much, much better. But anyway, so getting back. So when the doors were shut, the disciples were assembled. And as we, and, and he stood in the midst of them. And as we look at this verse, it becomes apparent that there's something really different about Jesus' resurrection body. And I just want to go over this quickly for time's sake. But you remember when we were in 1 Corinthians 15, we spent a lot of time in this chapter. And I pray that the, the frequency of it will just ingrain it into your heart because this is such a significant chapter because Paul tells us this kind of resurrection body that the dead in Christ will receive and you and I will receive. And it's the same body we believe that Jesus resurrected in. It says all flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh and another of animals, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, he tells us, and terrestrial bodies. Terrestrial bodies are the ones that we have. But Jesus received his celestial body, his resurrection body, very different from the body that you and I have. And Paul goes on and says that. He says, so also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. And I can relate to that. It is sown in weakness, but it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it will be raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body, and there is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man became a living being, and the last Adam, speaking of Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. That's why he said flesh and bone. He didn't say flesh and blood. Because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, but flesh and bone, this new resurrection body, had some qualities about it that are very unearthly, very supernatural. And one of the things he could do is he could pass through physical structures. Jesus passed through that tomb. As he laid in the tomb, the stone was rolled away. Again, remember, not so that Jesus could get out, but so that people could see what had already happened. And as they went inside that tomb, they saw the wraps that they had wrapped him with basically collapsed in on themselves because he passed right through it. And then the napkin that was around his head was folded in a different place. There's so much about just that alone that gives the, um, the proof of the resurrection. And so we see Jesus, something about his body was very different. And he could also appear in a different form. In Mark chapter 16, verse 9, it says that, um, uh, that when he arose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, and she went and told those things uh, to the disciples. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. Notice, they did not believe. After all that he had done, and and again, I feel comforted in this because these were the apostles of Christ, and yet they struggled. And here we are today, and perhaps some of you are struggling. Don't be discouraged. The Lord loves you, and he he wants to heal you. He wants to build up that faith that you have, that mustard seed of faith, even if that's all you have. And I tell you what, I hope I have at least a mustard seed. Because that's all I need. But Lord, you do it with with whatever you want. I want to have a tree of mustard seeds. But notice, after that, he appeared in another form. This resurrection body could pass through physical structures. It could... Um, appear in a different form. He appeared in a different form. The, the Greek is heteros morphe. He metamorphosized into something different, they, in a different form, to two of them as they walked along the country, speaking of the two men on the, on the road to Emmaus. But why would he appear in another form? As he walked with him, as we looked at that already, why would he do that? I believe he did that to draw them out, to really find out really what they were thinking, what, they are, what their faith. He gave them an opportunity for their faith to be on display. And Jesus did that to those men. And they initially failed the test. 
And then we also know that he showed himself in John 21 to his disciples. He showed himself. Jesus said to them, come and eat breakfast. And we'll see that in two weeks from now when we get into chapter 21. As he met them on the Galilee, on the shores with the fish, Jesus says, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of those disciples dared ask him, who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. There was something about him. They didn't quite get it. They didn't quite understand. They knew it was him, but they were... Is that really him? His resurrection body was slightly different. He could eat normal food. And he could also ascend into heaven. In 1 Corinthians, uh, it says that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. And Jesus said to the disciples that first Sunday evening after the resurrection, he says, Behold my hands and my feet. Handle me. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So back in verse 20 in our text, it says, So when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad. They, they, they literally rejoiced exceedingly when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, peace be to you. He said this the second time. He must have needed to do that because these guys were probably shaking. I don't know about you, but I, I, can you imagine being in that situation? As the Father has sent me, he said, I also send you. And when he had said this, notice, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is the moment we believe that the disciples were actually born again of the Spirit. Were they going to go to heaven before this? Yes, because they're saved by grace through faith, just like the Old Testament saints were. But now Jesus would give the Holy Spirit. He, he, he breathed upon them, and we believe that that is when they literally became born again, the Spirit of God indwelling them, and ultimately the Spirit of God would come upon them on the day of Pentecost on the day of Pentecost. Remember, Jesus told them that night in the upper room before he was arrested, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This is when it happened. That night of the resurrection, he will be in you. And it ought to remind, see, these guys needed this breath. They needed the Spirit of God in them to empower them, to give them this internal witness because Jesus would be rising and ascending soon. And they needed that strength. They needed that wisdom. They needed the Spirit of God in them. And then he promised to come upon them. He told them to wait for the promise of the Father. And what was the promise? That the Spirit of God would be poured out. And did he do that, as Joel had said, hundreds of years prior? Yes, he did, on the day of Pentecost. The room, they saw, there was a sound of a rushing. The sound of a rushing mighty wind came, and cloven tongues of fire stood over each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And what did they do? They spoke the wonderful works of God. They spoke the wonderful works of God. And this breath that was breathed into him ought to remind us of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, when God formed Adam out of the clay of the ground. And then the Bible says that he breathed, he literally resuscitated his breath. He breathed into Adam and he became a living soul or a living being. And so that same breath that brought life to Adam is the same breath that Jesus breathed on his disciples and gave them new life spiritually. And see, unless you are born again of the Spirit, you are none of God's. You are none of His. Peter tells us that. Unless the Spirit of God indwells you, you are not a Christian. You can't pay your way into Christian. You can't pay your way into heaven. You can't do good works and get into heaven. No, the Spirit of God either He is in you or He is not. And that's why it's so important to be born again. Ask God. He's not going to refuse you. Confess your sin. Confess your sins and come to him and say, Lord, forgive me. I am a sinner. I have sinned. And Lord, there are many sins on my account. Would you please wash them by the blood of Christ? Wash them away. And what does the Bible say? If we confess, he is faithful 
to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What better deal can you get than that, folks? There is no greater deal in the universe than that deal right there. If we confess, he will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Hallelujah. Love that. Let me get Baptist here. Can I get a hallelujah? Yes. So I'll stand up in our robes and get on the platform and wave our hand. You know, you know I mean, it's, it's, a good, it's good news. It's good. It's good. So notice in verse 23, he says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This sounds like a really diff- a difficult saying. And it does sound a little perplexing. But the bottom line is, the disciples, and by extension, even us, We have the authority to affirm that if somebody believes in Christ, they are forgiven. But we also have the ability to not confirm if somebody does not believe in Christ, then they are not forgiven. It's really that simple. But every person has to come to faith on their own. You can't get on the the coattails of your parents. Young people, you can't get uh, to heaven on the coattails of your parents. You can't ride on the coattails of anyone. It's got to be you and God. You've got to stand naked before him with all of everything that you've ever done, and you have to confess that, and he will not turn you away. He will love on you and encourage you. That's good news, isn't it? I love it. Notice verse 24. So now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. And the other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see, notice the, the, what Thomas says, unless I see the prints of the nails in his, in his hands and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Notice the condition that Thomas placed on his faith. His faith was conditional. It's not that he couldn't believe, but that he would not, again, an act of the will. Now, is Thomas in heaven? I believe he is, because he, we see what happens after this. But let's all grow in our faith and place no conditions on Jesus for it, for that faith in Christ. Let's believe him for who he says he is and learn to trust in him. The Bible even tells us in Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And unbelief is not something that's new only to the New Testament. It was in the Old Testament as well. We see that in uh, the book of uh, Deuteronomy in Numbers. When the children of Israel, remember Moses sent the 12 spies into the promised land, and only two of them came back with a positive report, Caleb and Joshua. All the other 10 of them were saying, oh, there's giants in the land, and the, you know, there's big people, and it's horrible. And, and, and everybody followed the 10, except the two, Joshua and Caleb. They were the only ones who returned a positive, faithful, and a view of what God was going to do. They're like, let's go up at once and take it, for God is going to give it to us. And yet the ten dissuaded the people, and everybody was all upset. We can't do it. There's giants. The Anakim are in the land. The Nephilim are there. We can't go. I'm not going. I'm not going. And so finally Moses upbraids them for their lack of faith, for their unbelief. And then they get wounded, and then they say, okay, we're going to go up now. And God says, no, don't. Don't go up now. I was with you before, but now... Because of your unbelief, I'm not going with you. And they said, well, we're going to go anyway. That just sounds like what a man would do, right? You get caught, you get wounded, and you're like, oh, I'm just going to push through anyway. And they get into a lot of trouble. The Amorites chase them out, and then they finally come to their senses. But it says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7, and this is where we can bring it back to us, because those men in the Old Testament There's something about unbelief. It's like wildfire. All it takes is one person to be discouraging when God has given somebody else a word of faith, given them something, and all it takes is one person or a a group of people to say, oh, I don't don't think so. I don't think God's going to do that. I'm not going to be a part of that. And all it takes is for that to fall apart. It's just a little dissuading a little discouragement, but notice what I believe Paul tells us in Hebrews. 
Therefore, as, and this is why it's important for us today, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, and this is for us today, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And Paul is referring to this event back in, in, in Numbers and Deuteronomy, this event where they lacked faith to go in and take the land when God had told them to. He says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trial in the wilderness where your father's tested me and they tried me and saw my works for 40 years and therefore I was angry with that generation I said they always go astray in their heart they have not known my ways so I swore in my wrath God says they shall not enter my rest and here's Paul's exhortation to us through the spirit of God he says beware brethren lest there be in any of you an evil heart an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another today, daily, while it is called today, lest any of you are hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it all those who came out of Egypt, led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who had sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. And see, we have to come to Christ. We have to believe in him. Believe in all that he says, and if you're discouraged today because your faith is, is, is you're struggling in your faith, you know what? That's, the Lord is not going to break that, that reed that's, broke, that's bending. It's not, he's not going to quench that smoking flax that's almost ready to be extinguished. Do you feel that way? He's not going to do that. He wants to build you up. He wants to encourage you. Jude tells us, but you, beloved, building yourself up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. That's the, that's the heart of God for us. He wants to build us up. So be built up. Be in the word of God every day. Be in prayer every day. Come to fellowship. As often as we have these doors open, come and listen to the word of God expounded to you. And let's encourage each other in the, the way we are supposed to do. We're supposed to love each other and to pray for each other and to encourage one another. Let's do that because the days, folks, are evil and we need to encourage one another. Are you really struggling? Why are you clamming up and, not, and saying, well, I'm okay, I'm really fine, when you're really not fine? If you're not fine, then get with somebody and tell them, you know what, I'm a mess. We don't have to play games anymore, do we? We don't have to play church anymore. Can't we just be honest? There's no spiritual giants. We need to be honest. Be honest with one another. And after eight days, verse 26, the disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors again being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace be with you. And when he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and, put my, and look at my hands, and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Notice that Jesus didn't just drop Thomas, but he met him where he was at. And again, remember this verse. A bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he will not quench. Remember the man whose son was demon-possessed? It tells us in Mark chapter 9. And I love this verse because there's such hope for all of us in it. This young man was demon-possessed. The father was at his wit's end. And so he asked his father, Jesus, asked the father, how long has it been, this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And often he has thrown him both into the fire, into the water, notice, to destroy him. That's all Satan wants to do is destroy. He'll promise you everything, but at the end of that promise, even if it's pleasurable, is a noose that you're going to hang on. That's always his plan. 
And see, God would have us be spared from that because he knows his adversary. We think that he's still a nice guy and he wants to give us all the bling. Ah, but there's a price for that bling. You may have a moment of pleasure, but oh, the price tag for that is so steep. So steep. But notice, he says, the man cried out, but if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said with tears, and I love the, the sincerity of this, the genuineness of this. He says, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. That sounds like my prayer often. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And is he going to turn you away? No, he's not going to turn you away. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. Never forget that. The devil will come and say, oh, you're washed up just like the other guys. Hey, you know what? As long as you got breath in your lungs, you keep crying out to God. He's not going to give up on you. He will be with you to the end of the age. Isn't that the promise that he had made? He said, I will be with you to the end of the age. Do I believe that? Because when I'm going through it, I need to remember that. When I've got my face in the carpet and I'm bawling my eyes out, i got to remember that. I have to remember that. And Thomas answered and said unto him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. But blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. Because believing is seeing, right? Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet they've believed. You know, I'm kind of glad that I didn't see Jesus. Most of us want, would like to have seen Jesus. But I'm kind of glad that I didn't. Because right now, when I think of Jesus, I think of him in his exalted state. I think of the description that's given to us in the first couple of first chapter of Revelation, where his eyes like a flame of fire and his hair like lightning, you know, I mean, and, and, and like white as wool and his feet like polished brass. I, I think of him in his exalted state, and I'm glad that I didn't see him because that's the image that I have in my heart as the exalted Christ. And I feel as more, more advantaged in that way. And I believe that we all can be as well because we believe. Hopefully every one of us in this room have given our heart to Christ. We believed him even though we haven't seen him. And what is the promise that he said? Blessed are those. Truly happy are those who have not seen and yet believed. And John finally ends this out. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. Yes, because the other three Gospels have a, a, a number of others. But were there others? I'm sure there were that weren't written down. But these things are written that you may believe. There, therein is the theme of this book. That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. John cherry-picked these specific miracles for the specific intent purpose of getting us to have faith in who Jesus said he was. That's the purpose of this gospel. So as we looked at, you know, the I am statements that Jesus said, I am the door, I am the bread of life, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd. And he goes on and on, I am the bread of life. All those things were for a specific reason that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it's written that our faith might grow and become more mature. Has your faith increased? Since we've been in the Gospel of John, as we have looked at all of these specific miracles, has your faith grown? I pray that it has, because if it hasn't, then I failed. But that is the purpose, that we would have faith in the Son of God. I pray that you, along with me, that we would all continue to grow. Because, folks, the bottom line is we are all in different places, but we're all the body of Christ. Some are further along the, 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 the trail than we are, and some of us are, lag, are, are at the very end, and I'm probably one of those hanging out at the very end. And it doesn't matter because, guess what, we're all going to be with him. 
Do you understand? There's no competition. There's no competition. Make sure that you're on that narrow path today. Make sure that you are on that narrow and going to that narrow gate that leads to life because broad is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And many there are that are on that path and they're going off the cliff. And we are the ones who are supposed to say, don't go on that broad path. Grab them and bring them and stick to them and hold, stick them on your shoulders. Do what you got to do. Put duct tape on them, whatever you got to do, and get them on that path with you. Of course, they have to make their own choice, but get them on the path. Show them the narrow path, the narrow way that's open for everybody. And may we grow in our faith with one another and in faith in Jesus specifically. I want that, don't you? I want my faith to grow, and it is growing. I'd like it to be growing a lot quicker and much bigger, but you know what? I can't do anything. Have you realized that? Sometimes, have you ever tried to strain and fuss to, to be more holy than you are? You know what? Just relax and let God do the work. Let him do the work. Don't try to make anything happen. Just love him and be loved by him and spend much time with him. And you know what? By doing that very thing, you're going to be further along than you could have any other way. It's a mystery. It is a mystery. It's so simple, and yet we try to grab the reins. We try to grab the steering wheel and say, no, I'm going to be a part of this, and I'm going to drive. And God's going, why don't you just take your hands off the, the steering wheel because you're heading for a light pole, by the way. Um, get our hands off and just rest and trust him. And by doing that, That requires faith, doesn't it? And ask God for that faith. Let's stand together and let's ask him to do that in each of us, to give us a greater faith. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would just grant us everything that we need to live in the time that we're living right now, Lord. Would you please, Lord, increase our faith, that we would have the faith of even a mustard seed, Lord, that could say to this mountain, move, and it would move, Lord. And Lord, we know that there's more to that, than that, that statement, Lord. But Lord, we ask that you would just fill us. Fill us to overflowing. Grant us that faith, Lord, that we need. And would you please have more of us today than you had yesterday and the week before. And Lord, help us to trust you, Lord. You are trustworthy, Lord. We can trust you. We can have faith in you, Lord. Fill us. And, and fan the flame of our faith, Lord, that it would grow daily, moment by moment. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.